0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Prophet Zephaniah in the Great Day of the Lord. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday November sixteenth, two 2008. <clears throat> in describing the scientific enterprise, Professor Dick Bube of Stanford once remarked that there's a big difference between between description and explanation. Description, he said, is comparatively easy, whereas explanation can be extremely difficult and sometimes impossible. Reading the prophet Zephaniah reminds me of Bube's wisdom. Of the twelve minor prophets, Zephaniah's central theme is probably the easiest to describe. In five brief pages, he refers to the so-called Day of the Lord, quote-unquote, at least 19 times. But exactly what Zephaniah means by the Day of the Lord is more difficult to explain. His prophecy begins with some wild poetry about a coming day of divine judgment. We read in chapter one verses one to three I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the feet of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. <clears throat> this is the great day of the Lord's wrath. 114, And it's a day of bitterness, anguish, ruin, and gloom. (coughs) Zephaniah's initial scope is not just Judah or her surrounding enemies, but rather the entire world. (coughs) His vision is universal. Parts of his prophecy about the day of the Lord are directed to the whole world (coughs) and all who live in the earth one hundred eighteen and three eight The nations and kingdoms on every shore two eleven. But Zephaniah has particularly harsh words for Judah. <coughs> in two long passages he directly addresses God's elect people. There was religious infidelity in the worship of Baal and Molech. In the economic sphere, there was wanton luxury (coughs) predicated upon oppression and exploitation. These people wore, quote-unquote, foreign clothes, only the nicest imports from the most expensive stores. The market district, merchants, and those who, quote-unquote, trade with silver will be wiped out. In the social and cultural realm, violence and oppression ruled the day. Judah's officials, prophets, and priests were singled out as predators. This is a people, says Zephaniah in chapter 3, verse 5, who knows no shame. Zephaniah then turns his attention to five surrounding nations. God will also judge Philistia, Moab, Amnon, Cush into Syria. Notice the concentric circles God's elect people, Judah, five surrounding nations, and then even the entire world or the whole earth. Whatever we might think about God's judgment, it's equitable in at least two senses. First, the judgment that Zephaniah describes is the same for all. Neither God's elect nor the pagan enemy nations are treated differently. There are no favorites, so to speak. In writing to the believers at Rome, Paul made this very point. To the Jews who rightly saw themselves as an elect people of divine privilege, Paul reminds them that God's judgment is righteous. We read in Romans 2, 5-11, There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. In Zephaniah, Judah, the five enemy nations in the entire world, get the same treatment. God's judgment is equitable in a second sense. People often caricature divine judgment as some ambivalent and arbitrary outburst, like the unpredictable anger of a parent who lashes out at his children. But that's hardly the case here. God's judgment is entirely predictable, without any surprises. It's a purifying response to all the many things that dehumanize us. Social violence political oppression, religious fakery, economic exploitation, and the like. Think about it. Do we really want a Charles Taylor of Liberia or an Idi Amin of Uganda to go unpunished? Do I really want God to leave me to my own worst impulses of envy, greed, anger, and so forth? Or do I not want him to judge, rescue, and purify me from them? Would I really prefer that these impurities not be cleansed and taken away from me, that I not be held accountable? The most terrifying texts in the Bible are those where God gives us up to our own sin, poor choices, foolishness, ignorance, and the like. Divine judgment is equitable and even merciful In that, like a loving parent, it demonstrates that God has not given up on me, that he is not finished with me. Just when is the great day of the Lord? Two times Zephaniah writes that it is near and coming quickly. 1, chapter 1, verse 7 and 14. A natural way to read this is that he foresaw the coming invasion of Babylon, roughly fifty years into his future. His readers already knew what had happened to the northern kingdom of Israel only a hundred years earlier, when in 722 BC Assyria destroyed them. But given Zephaniah's universal scope, it's possible that he also envisioned not only a near future, but a far future. But at this point we should be content with description and admit our ignorance about the detailed explanation. The day of the Lord in divine judgment has less to do about chronology and clock time, what the Greeks called chronos, and everything to do with sensing the time of God's special visitation, what the Greeks called kairos, Thus, Jesus encourages us in Matthew sixteen three to understand the signs of the time. <coughs> not in the sense of what day of the week it is, or what month or year, but in the sense of understanding what God is doing right now. Similarly, and tragically, Jesus lamented that Jerusalem, quote, did not recognize the time of God's coming to you the kairos of God's coming to you, Luke 19.44. And so, discerning God's judgment has less to do with solving a chronological puzzle about the far future, and everything to do about sensing the speaking and acting of God, right here, right now. In Zephaniah, God's judgment intends to be redemptive, and not merely retributive or punitive. It's not an end in itself, but a means to a better end. There is a scattering, but there is also a quote-unquote gathering. Chapter 3, verse 20. There is the announcement of impending doom, <coughs> but Zephaniah also includes an invitation and appeal. <clears throat> he beseeches us to seek the Lord before The dreadful day of the Lord comes. Divine judgment, then, is not inevitable. It is not some immutable law of fate. Should we mend our ways, our history will change. Zephaniah envisions a day when God takes away your punishment, a time when you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done. Chapter 3, 11 and 15. It's a day when God is mighty to save, a time when he takes great delight in us, when he will quiet us with his love and rejoice over us with singing. Three, sixteen, and 17. Echoing his prophetic partners, Zephaniah finally says that the day of the Lord is a day when the nations on every shore will worship him, everyone in his own land. Chapter Two, Verse Eleven. Yahweh's judgment then is a severe mercy, or a tough love, for it anticipates the time when mercy triumphs over wrath. Habakkuk three two, in His grace, overshadows our sin. Romans five twenty. <clears throat> For books this week, I review Oliver Sacks, Music Ophelia, Tales of Music in the Brain, New York, Knopf, 2007, 381 pages. Whenever my daughter has a tune in her head that she can't shake, she's devised an interesting solution. Turn on the radio, she says, I've got to hear some different music. In effect, she tricks her brain and diverts it from one musical function to another. In this, his tenth book, Oliver Sacks, professor of clinical neurology and psychiatry at Columbia University, explores how the brain processes music. As in his other books, Sacks compiles dozens and dozens of what he calls clinical anecdotes. These are informal, inherently interesting, and deeply human case histories of his patients. In addition, he shares at length from letters that he has received, scientific studies, the results of brain imaging techniques, and also at great length from his own personal experiences. Rooted in his own deep love for and skill in music, Sachs examines how music impacts almost every aspect of brain function. If that sounds far-fetched, consider the broad range of his topics. There's musical imagery whereby you quote-unquote listen to a tune in your mind even though there is no sound. As experience shows, this can be either voluntary or involuntary. Sometimes an obsession or even something like a possession by the music. Another long chapter explores musical hallucinations. There are forays into amusia, distimbria, disharmony, perfect pitch, and musical savants. He analyzes the relationship of music and blindness, music and color, music and speech, Parkinson's disease, Tourette's syndrome, dreams, music and dementia. Sometimes musical results from a seizure. At other times, music seems to induce a seizure. Saxe's book is an, is an extended case study of the brain-mind relationship. And most mysterious of all is the question whether music even has any meaning. As he writes on page 37... While music is most closely tied to the emotions, music is wholly abstract. It has no formal power of representation whatever. We may go to a play to learn about jealousy, betrayal, vengeance, and love. But music, instrumental music, can tell us nothing about these. Music can have wonderful, formal, quasi-mathematical perfection, and it can have heartbreaking tenderness, poignancy, and beauty, but it does not have to have any meaning whatever. Such is the mystery of music, that although it conveys no inherent meaning, no one would question its power. Oliver Sacks, Musicophilia. For film this week, I review a currently playing movie called Religulous. Every once in a while, a truly bad movie comes along. This is one of them. Comedian Bill Maher interviews a couple dozen adherents of religion with the apparent goal of making them look stupid, and unfortunately, that's not difficult. He employs tomahawk journalism In condescending sarcasm. He edits the interviews to suit his purpose and he chooses easy targets, like an evangelist who claims to be Jesus, an actor who plays Jesus at a theme park, in a so-called cannabis ministry in Amsterdam. Sure, there are a few funny moments, but Mayer mainly succeeds in looking horribly smug. When he tries to be personal and explore his own religious views, as when he interviews his own mother, we learn nothing that's interesting. When he tries to be serious, as when he interviews a Vatican astronomer, or Francis Collins, head of the Genome Project, and an outspoken Christian, Meyer looks like a badly informed and unprepared 8th grader trying to impress his teacher. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, at the very end of the film, Meyer intones with utmost seriousness, quote, for mankind to survive, religion must end. end quote. Okay, thanks for that amazing insight. Religulous is a mockumentary mashup. <clears throat> and finally, this week, for the fall, we've posted a poem called God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins who lived from 1844 to 1889. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil. And wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning, at the brown brink eastward springs, because the holy ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. Gerard Manley Hopkins, the title of the poem, God's Grandeur. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November the 16th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.